Thank you very much. Good to be back here. And um, I'll see all of you. Uh, so this origin series, as Rich said, we're really kind of in the middle of it now. And um, it's all about taking a journey through Genesis chapters 1 to 11. Genesis is the book of beginnings, so certainly we see the, the, the beginnings, the origins of the universe, life, the world. Uh, and really what we find in these chapters is, is it describes God's relationship with the world. And it contains some foundational themes, some foundational events that, well, they really explain why the world is as it is today, the, the good things and the bad things. Last week, we reached a pivotal point in the story of the world where we came to this choice that Adam and Eve made, this disastrous choice, this decision they made uh, with the, the help of the serpent to not trust God, to not believe that God is as good as he says he is and to put a higher value and a higher trust in their own independence. And that is really the definition of sin. That's what sin is. And so sin entered the world and it had disastrous consequences for them and for the whole world, for the whole of mankind. We're living with those consequences now. But there is hope. Immediately, hope is given in Genesis 3.15 where God makes this promise about one who would come from the offspring of the woman, a descendant of Eve who would come to crush the head of the serpent and to, to, to bring the solution to this problem that is now in the world. It's the first expression of the gospel that we have in the Bible. And the rest of the Bible is really an outworking of that promise that God makes. So in chapter three, we had the origin of sin and the origin of hope and the gospel. And then as we come to chapter four, we see the continuation of that, which is why this is origins of sin and hope, part two. So I'm gonna read from chapter four. I'm gonna read verses one to 16. So if you have a Bible, you can follow along. Uh, if not, it's on the screen. Adam lay with his wife Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, with the help of the Lord, I've brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. And so Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you're driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. And then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. And so Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. 
Okay, it's quite a story. It, it's, it's a fast-paced story. You move very quickly from these boys being born to, to murder. And, of course, it's the story of the first murder in the world. So it, and it's very easy to focus in on just that because it is a shocking thing. Cain murders his brother because he's angry and he's jealous. But actually, chapter 4 is about a lot more than that because what we have here in Genesis 4 is a case study of life. And it's what life is like east of Eden. This is where Adam and Eve have been removed to, east of Eden. What life is like in a broken world, in a fallen world, outside of God's paradise. And we see it described here in chapter 4. Now, while life today and the world today may look very different in many different ways to what we see in in chapter 4, actually the threads that run through this story are the same threads, the same factors, the same themes that run through modern life in a fallen world. And those threads are sin, God's grace, and the hope of salvation. And so I'm gonna look at those three things today. Sin, God's grace, the hope of salvation. So we learn something from this story about the nature of sin, how sin operates, what it's like. On one hand, the sin we see here is very, very obvious because it leads to murder. You know, it's very visible, it's very obvious, the consequence here. And we can see clearly how sin and its impact have grown, have escalated from its beginnings in in Genesis 3. It's now having a far wider impact on family and on society, and the impact it has is very destructive. We can spot sin very easily when it's like that, when it's murder, when it's robbery, that kind of thing. But do we recognize sin at its beginnings, at its roots? Because there's a process that led Cain to this place of murder. It wasn't an instant thing. There was a process. There's something which grew within him over time which led him to the place of even being possibility that he might kill his brother. And so sin has, has roots because on the surface, Cain and Abel are the same. They're born to the same parents. They're in the same situation. They both work. Cain uh, works the soil. Abel tends the flocks. They both believe in God. They worship him. They bring sacrifices to him. On the surface, they're the same, but there's something else lurking under the surface with Cain because he receives this rejection from God. He experiences kind of a knockback from God. And I will, later on, I'll go into a bit more on what that's about, that, you know, why that happened. Because actually Genesis 4 doesn't give us much indication as to why Abel's offering was received with favour and Cain's offering wasn't. But the focus of Genesis 4 is on his response and on what God says. His response of being angry and depressed and then what God says to him, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? And we get this metaphor for sin in verse seven where God says, look, if you don't do what is right, sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you, but you must master it. And so God gives this interesting picture of sin as being kind of like a crouching animal, a crouching presence with its own power and its own life that is just waiting to pounce. It's just waiting for the right moment to pounce and to, and to have you. Now, why does an animal crouch? If you think about a lion that's stalking its prey and it's kind of going through the long grass, why does it crouch? Well, in the first instance, it's to remain hidden for as long as possible. So the unsuspecting prey isn't even aware of the danger it's in, just going about its business quite happily, unaware of the danger that is lurking around the corner. So it's trying to remain, sin will try to remain hidden for as long as possible. It will try to keep itself off your radar. Or 
Sin will present itself as something else because the other thing about a crouching animal is that when it is seen, it looks a lot smaller and a lot less threatening than it actually is because it's crouched down. And sin will always try to present itself as something else, maybe even as a virtue, you know, as a good thing. So you know, I'm, not, I'm not a workaholic, I'm just, I'm just productive. Or I, I'm not stingy, I'm just prudent. You know, sin will try to present itself as something good or something that's just a little flaw. You know, it's just, it's not that bad though. It's not really a big deal. Yes, it's, yes, sometimes I, I do that, I have that attitude, but it's not really that bad. Everyone's like that. Yeah, I get jealous sometimes, but it's just a small thing. I don't let it show. You know, yeah, sometimes I get angry. Yeah, sometimes I blow a fuse when someone cuts me up on the road, but I never show that with my family and with my kids. Yeah, occasionally I might watch something online or on TV that I really shouldn't watch, but everybody does. It's not a problem, it's under control, it's just a small thing. Sin will present itself as something else. It will present itself as just a little flaw. You know, it's not all that bad, it's not really a big deal, but it's crouching. And at some point it will pounce, it will uncoil, because it desires to have you. Now the indication that God gives to Cain is that in the early stages of sin and temptation, you know, at, when you first start to experience self-pity or bitterness, anger, envy, greed, whatever it might be, that in those early stages, you still have an element of control. That you, you can still rule over it, you can still master it, but when you give in, when you give in to sin, when you indulge it, when you cross that threshold of the door at which sin is crouching, then it's like sin has its own power to pounce, to grow, to, to create something destructive in your life. So it starts hidden, it starts small, but it has the potential to grow and take over and take you out. I mean, I, I'm sure the married man who commits adultery didn't start out like that, didn't set out on his wedding day thinking, well, in a few years, I'm gonna sleep with somebody else. No, it would have started something small, a bit of bitterness, creeps in, a bit of self-pity creeps in, you know, she's not meeting my needs, she's, she doesn't really understand me, not like, not like that person does. And when those small things, those roots are left unchecked and indulged, when it's not nipped in the bud, it can lead to something very destructive indeed. Now that's just one example, but what are the things that are crouching in your life? What are those attitudes of your heart or actions that you take that you might be aware of and you might be aware that actually it's not great, but you know what, it's not too bad. It's really not that bad. I'm not a workaholic, I'm just productive, I'm just diligent. I'm not bitter, I'm just expressing my justified anger. I'm not envious, I'm not jealous, I just like to dream about what life could be. You know, yeah, sometimes I watch stuff that I shouldn't watch, but... It's just a natural part of being a man. You know, what, what harm can it do? I'm not physically doing anything with anybody else. If you, spot a, uh, uh, if you spot a patch of rust on your car, it's a really good idea to get it dealt with, to get something done about it, because it will spread, and it's corrosive. And in time, if it's left unchecked, it will cause the car to fall apart. It will cause the car to be written off. What are the rust spots that you might have in your life? Things that appear to be just little... Little things I can just ignore, it's not too bad. What are the crouching sins, the sinful attitudes of your heart that will grow, will be corrosive in a greater and greater extent if they're left unchecked? 
What are the crouching sins that you have in your life? So we see something of the nature of sin and the progression of sin in Genesis 4. And it's as relevant to us today as it is here in this story. We also see the thread of God's grace that's woven through the story in a couple of ways. So first, we see God's grace to Cain in the way that he pursues Cain. He, he cares for Cain. He, he has great concern for Cain. This isn't a God who's sitting there watching from afar, waiting to see if Cain's going to pass the test or waiting for Cain to fail. Now he comes to Cain in the key moment. He comes at that threshold moment where there's like a tipping point in Cain's life where he could still master this growing sin. He could still rule over it or he will be mastered by it. And God comes to him. He initiates. Nobody calls God. He initiates and he comes in that moment where Cain is feeling angry and depressed. But how does he come to Cain? Again, we just see his gentleness, his grace. Because he doesn't come to Cain and say, how dare you? Who do you think you are to be angry with me? I'll show favour to who I want to show favour to. Do you know who I am? Pull yourself together, Cain. He doesn't come like that. He comes kind of like a coach, a counsellor. Because he comes asking questions. He says, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? God is for Cain. He, he wants the best for Cain. He wants Cain to master this. Come on, Cain, think about it. Come on, why are you angry? What's at the heart of this? What's at the root? Where's this come from? And where's this going to lead you if you don't do something about it? How can you nip this in the bud? I want you to do that. I want you to master this. I want the best for you, Cain. And so God comes alongside as a kind of an affirming coach who ask questions. He's trying to tease the best out of Cain. He's trying to help Cain to see where things have gone wrong, where he's gone off track, where, where his heart has kind of gone offline. And what's at the heart of this? Now, when we experience extreme reactions in ourselves, when we find, for example, that we've had a moment of disproportionate anger, you, you know, when disproportionate because the situation doesn't really merit that level of level anger, where it's just flared up out of nowhere, it's like a volcano erupting, or, or we find that we're disproportionately depressed, or disproportionately anxious. When we experience that extreme type of response in us, do you know what? There is a moment of God's grace in it for you, if, if you're alert to it. Because just as God comes to Cain and he asks, why? Come on Cain, think about this, why? Why are you reacting like this? Why are you so angry? Why are you so depressed? What's really going on? Well, when we experience that kind of extreme reaction and we spot it in ourselves, it should cause us to stop and ask the same question. Why? Why did I respond like that? That was so out of proportion. God, help me understand what's going on in my heart. There's a moment of God's grace in there if we're alert to it. Now, I wonder where Cain would have got to if he had responded to God's prompting. Why am I so angry and depressed? Why, you know, what is going on in me? Because you would understand if he experienced disappointment or he felt a bit hurt at what happened, that Abel's offerings looked on with favour and his isn't. You understand that. It's like if you're at school and you hand in a piece of work that you think is as good as or better than somebody else's piece of work and they get all the praise and you get an F. You get must try harder. And it's natural to feel disappointed it's natural to feel a sense of confusion or maybe a bit hurt at that. But Cain's response of anger and depression is extreme. And we know it's extreme because it leads to murder. And we don't know what God's favour upon Abel looked like, how that was expressed, how that was manifested. We don't know, but whatever it is, it causes Cain to become furious and bitter and jealous. 
So what if Cain had asked himself why? Bit of speculation here, not unfounded, but a bit of speculation. Maybe as the older brother, Cain sees himself as better, stronger, more significant than Abel. I mean, look at the way they're announced at the beginning of chapter four. It says, uh, she gave birth to Cain, and she said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to Abel. It's kind of like Abel's a bit of an afterthought. Some commentators have looked at their names and suggested that the names have, have some meaning, that Cain's name means something very positive, like fruitful or successful, and that Abel's name means something very negative, like worthless or futile. Nobody's completely sure about that, but that's the kind of the, the, the conjecture, the, specula- the speculation that's out there. And so it makes sense of, of, of this. It makes sense that maybe Cain is brought up to believe that he is the promised child, that he is the promised offspring, that he's the Messiah that was alluded to in the, in the previous chapter. Maybe that's how he sees himself. I'm the winner in the family. I'm the important one. I'm the significant one. I am better than Abel at everything. I'm bigger, I'm faster, I'm stronger, I'm cleverer. I'm always better than Abel at everything. And so why is he so angry? Well, if he constructs his identity primarily in relation to his brother, if he sees himself as better and more significant, and that's where he gets his sense of worth, his sense of significance, well, then of course he can't handle it if Abel suddenly is the one who's favoured and Cain isn't, because I'm the one who wins. I'm the one, where does this leave me? It would completely knock his whole identity, and it would bring an extreme response because it's like an arrow at the heart of who he is, at the heart of how he sees himself. And so he finds this intense jealousy and anger and depression welling up. Now, that is a bit speculative, but it's not without foundation, actually, if you read various commentators on this passage. But what we have is God here saying, come on, Cain, why? Why? Ask yourself, Cain, why are you so angry? And when you do, you will find that you've been building your identity on the wrong thing. You've been building it on a sense of superiority to your brother when you should be building it on me and on how I see you and only on that. And if we ask ourselves that question, if we ask ourselves why, when we experience extreme responses in our lives, if you spend time thinking about it, unraveling it, asking God for help with that, you'll probably find something similar is going on in your life, that you're building your identity on something other than God which in itself is sinful and certainly gives a sin a doorway into our lives. So if you build your identity on success, being successful, uh, having a great career, that's where you find your whole sense of self and worth and significance and acceptance, security, all those kind of things. Then when you experience failure or you lose your job or you don't get promoted, you're not just going to feel the natural disappointment that you would, anybody would feel that. You're going to be devastated by it. It's going to knock you for six. You're going to be, your life is going to feel like it's been ruined. If you've built your life on having the perfect family, the model Christian family, well, when your spouse or your children don't live up to your vision of what you think that should look like, you're going to experience extreme reactions. Some you're going to feel out of control. You're going to feel maybe anger. You're going to feel maybe wallowing in self-pity. If you try to build your identity on being a good person, I am a good person, I am a moral person, when you fail, as you will, that could lead to all sorts of things. You know, sense of, acute sense of failure, self-loathing, depression, anger, feeling out of control. If you've built your identity on your looks, it's going to be devastating when your looks fail. If you've built your identity on living up to your parents' expectations or anything else, anything other than God is far too fragile to support the weight of your identity. 
anything other than God is way too fragile to support the weight of your significance. It will just be like sinking sand. It will just be like ground crumbling underneath your feet. For me, when I, when I, ask, when I spot an extreme reaction in myself, it does happen sometimes, um, and I ask myself why, what I tend to find is when I kind of unravel it, it comes down really to a fear of failure and wanting success and wanting outward success, wanting people to see me in a certain way, which is pride. And it leads me to try to be in control of all these things and do everything in my own strength and out of my own competence and all that kind of thing. And so I have to realign in those moments when I realize that's what's going on and just say, God, I give control of those things to you because I can't control them. And I I just want to rest in how you see me and not be concerned with how anybody else thinks of me. And it's a chance to realign. It's a chance to get my eyes focused again in the right place, to build on the right things. It's God's grace to me in those moments. When you're building your identity on the wrong thing, there will be warning signs. So one will be, it could be that, you know, that way of thinking which goes, look, if I could just have that, that, then I would be happy. Like, that is the missing piece of the jigsaw. Then I'll be happy. Now, if that is anything other than knowing more of the love of Jesus, it won't, it won't make you happy. It won't satisfy. It might bring fleeting satisfaction, but it won't ultimately satisfy, and it will lead to emptiness. It's a warning sign. If you're thinking in that way, if I could just have that, then that's a warning sign that you're building your identity on the wrong thing. And of course, the warning sign that I've just been speaking about, extreme responses, extreme reactions, see it as a moment of grace. Why did I respond like that? Why am I so angry? Why am I so anxious? Why am I so depressed? Can't think about it. What am I building my identity on? It's God's grace to us in those moments that give us an opportunity to grow and to change and to start putting our trust in the right place, to start building our identity again on the right thing, which is God and on how he sees you. But you do have to listen out for what he's saying. You've got to be alert to those moments. So what if you're not? What if you miss it? What if you miss the moment? You're completely unaware of those things in you. Well, do you know what? It's also God's grace to you that he puts people in your life, puts people around you who can see your blind spots. Because we all have them. And who can gently point out where we have blind spots. You know, this is why accountability, community, in the church is so important and is so much a part of God's heart. It's why we bang on all the time about small groups and knowing others, the importance of knowing others and being known yourself. It's so, so important. Now, of course, we do have a responsibility in how we receive any criticism, anyone pointing out our blind spots, because it might not be done in the most gracious way. And some of it might not be true. But we can have a tendency, well, I can have a tendency to get very defensive and just think, oh, that's rubbish, don't be so silly. But actually, it might be that not all of it's true, but if there is a grain of truth in there, that's God's grace to you. And so listen to it, respond to it. It's his grace to you. We, we need to cooperate with God's grace however it comes to us in all humility. Otherwise, the, that longing, if I could just have that, it will just grow. It will just become more insatiable and appetite. Or the, the anger, the depression, the anxiety, it will grow. It will get worse because sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you. And so look out for those moments of God's grace. So we see God's grace to Cain before the murder. We also see it after the murder as well because he comes and asks questions again. Where's your brother? What have you done? And it's not because God doesn't know the answer. 
It's a bit like in the previous chapter where he comes to Adam and he says, where are you? Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I told you not to eat from? It's not because God doesn't know the answer. It's because he wants to give them a chance to own up, confess, take responsibility for what they've done, repent. But in neither case does that happen. You know, Adam says, well, it's the woman that you put here with me. So it's either her fault or it's your fault, but it's definitely not mine. And Eve says, well, no, no, but it was the serpent. He, he made me. So Adam blames Eve and Eve blames the serpent and the serpent doesn't have a leg to stand on. Apologies if you've heard that before. If you've done freedom in Christ, you've heard it before. But there's this blame shifting going on, this blame game, shifting of responsibility. It's her fault, it's his fault, it's not my fault. Cain does the same. God says, where's your brother? He says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? He knows full well what's happened. It's another mark of sin in us. It's a mark of, of, it's a result of allowing sin to grow in us, this defensiveness, this refusal to take responsibility, refusal to be held accountable. It's not my fault. It's everybody else's fault, or it's your fault, God, but it's not mine. Well, we see what happens. God says, well, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on this earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you're driving me from the land and I'll be hidden from your presence and I'll be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Notice there's still no remorse. There's no repentance from Cain. It's self-pity, self-preservation. He's scared, he's terrified about what's gonna happen to him. But there has to be justice. There's got to be a punishment. There's got to be a penalty for what he has done. God demands justice. It's part of his character. He is perfectly just and he cannot be unjust. We demand justice, all of us. We all have something within us because we're made in the image of God that demands, that cries out for justice. When we see terrible things going on in the world around us or people we love are hurt by somebody or we ourselves are treated badly, we want justice. We want justice for everybody apart from ourselves, of course. But here we see how God's demand for justice is balanced by his desire to show mercy and show grace. First of all, in the fact that he doesn't just kill Cain on the spot. He doesn't just end him there and then because that's what Cain deserves. But also how he responds to Cain's pleading, look, this is too much for me to bear. Whoever finds me will kill me. The Lord says, God says, not so. It's a great line, not so. And he puts this mysterious mark on Cain. Essentially, it means that God's protection, wherever Cain goes, wherever Cain wanders, wherever Cain ends up, God's protection will be upon him. That is grace. This is God's grace revealed even for an unrepentant sinner. It's astounding. Now I wonder, do we show grace like that to others? Or do we look down on others? Do we see some people as lost causes? Beyond God's grace, beyond our grace, Do we love others even when you get nothing back? Even when they're very difficult to love, even when they don't deserve it? Because that's what God does. That's what God is like. And we are to be growing more and more like him. So there's the thread of sin, there's the thread of God's grace, then there's the thread of salvation. The hope of salvation that is woven through this story and woven through your story and our story. What was the difference between Cain's offering and Abel's offering? What was the difference? Was it just that God doesn't like vegetables? He prefers meat? Is it that Cain brought substandard goods 
and Abel brought the best. Now, there may be a suggestion of that, because it talks about Abel bringing uh, the fat portions of the firstborn, first fruits. It doesn't say that Cain did that, but then again, it doesn't say he didn't do that either. It's not clear. Genesis 4 doesn't make the reason clear, but Hebrews 11 does shed some light here. Because it says this, by faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he offered a better sacrifice. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks even though he's dead. The difference is faith. But faith in what? Because clearly not faith in God in general because clearly Cain believes in God. He's speaking to him. It's faith in, in the work of God in the goodness, the trustworthiness of God. It's faith in the promises of God. Both Cain and Abel know about the promise God made to their parents, about the descendant of Eve who had come, who had crushed the serpent's head. They know about this promise. The the, the one who had come to bring deliverance, to bring rescue, to bring salvation. They know that God has promised this. He's promised he would do it. He will bring salvation. He will make sure it happens. He will provide the solution to the problem. And Abel believed him. He had faith in that promise. Even though he couldn't see it yet, he believed him. And so he brings this offering in faith. It's a response of gratitude. It's a response to the promised salvation of God. And we're told that just like with Abraham later on, this faith, this belief, this trust is credited to Abel as righteousness. He is made righteous. Because effectively, he's looking forward. With that faith, he's looking forward to the future event of the coming of Jesus Christ. He doesn't know the details of that. He doesn't know it's going to be somebody called Jesus. He doesn't know it's going to be the son of God, but he trusts God. He believes him because God said he would provide the solution. So in Abel's mind, so he's going to do it. I believe him. And he was made righteous. He was saved through faith in and through looking forward to that future event of Jesus coming. Just as we are saved, we are made righteous through faith in and through, for us, looking back to the coming of Jesus. So Abel's offering was a grateful response to the promise of God's salvation. He believed him. Cain's offering, in contrast, was as an attempted means to salvation. It's trying to be something. It's trying to earn favor, trying to find approval with God through what he could do, through being good, through trying to do the right thing. Now, how often do we slip into acting just like Cain? Trying to access God's grace, trying to escape from sin, trying to get salvation by being good, by going to church, by giving to the poor, by studying your Bible, by being seen to do all the right things. If you... If you don't come to church purely out of a response to what God has done, if you don't give uh, your money and give your time and give whatever, in, in many other ways, purely as a response of gratitude to the fact that God already completely accepts you in Christ and there's nothing more to be said and there's nothing more that can be done, it is, it, it is done. If there's any other reason mixed up in there, then your sacrifice and your coming to church and your giving and your trying to be good is simply a means to try to get God to do something for you. It's to earn his favor, it's to find his approval and it's being like Cain rather than like Abel. And again, there is a warning sign in here for us to look out for because Cain is angry with God. I've done all the right things in my life, I've done the same as Abel, in fact, I'm better than him. And So what's going? He's angry with God. He feels he deserves more from God. Do you often find yourself angry with God? 
You haven't haven't given me the life that I deserve. Why won't you do this for me? That's not a response of being saved by grace. That's a response of, God, you owe me something because look at everything I do for you. And that's like Cain, the older brother in the story, which is very like the older brother in the story of the prodigal son, for those of you who know that parable that Jesus told, is a warning sign. So check your heart, check your attitudes to God. Do you find you're angry with God a lot? Do you find you look down on people a lot? Be careful, guard your heart. Abel looked forward in faith to the one who would come. He trusted in God's promise. Now, of course, the promise didn't look very likely once once Abel has been uh, murdered and Cain has been banished. It's not looking likely. The sons are all gone until you read verse 25 which says, Adam lay with his wife again and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. Hope is restored. It looks bleak, it looks hopeless, but it's not. Hope is restored. The promise is still there. The promise is still active and it's through the line of Seth that Jesus would eventually come, the Messiah. And Jesus, who of course succeeded where Abel failed because uh, where Cain failed, because Cain was the firstborn in creation. And maybe he thought he was the solution, that he was the Messiah. But Jesus, we are told, is the firstborn over all creation. And he was the solution. He is the Messiah. Cain was defeated by sin. Sin mastered Cain. Jesus mastered sin. He never gave into it. Cain brought death. But Jesus, he came and he defeated death. And he came to bring life and life to the full. See, the thing is, we can't defeat sin on our own. We can't master it. We can't rule over it on our own, in our own strength, because like Stuart said last week, because of Adam's sin, we are born as slaves to sin. We're born in the category of sinner. We're constituted as sinners. We can't help but sin, but Romans 6 tells us that in Christ, in his power, the power of sin has been broken, that you have been set free from sin, and so in him, in Christ, you can overcome You can rule over sin. You can master it. Because central to this story is the blood. It's Abel's blood that is unjustly spilt on the ground and it cries out to God and it cries out for justice. But of course, that points forward to something far greater. Hebrews 12, 24 says, you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and you've come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cried out for justice. It cried out for vindication because of the wrong that had been done to him. It cried out for justice against Cain. Jesus' blood also cries out for justice, but in a different way. It establishes justice for you, on your behalf, not against you. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. He is faithful and just and he will forgive us our sins and will purify us from all unrighteousness. How can that possibly be just? How can it possibly be just for God to forgive our sins, to just forgive the wrong that we have done only through the penalty paid by Jesus? Only through his blood is that justice established and the blood of Jesus cries out to God, let your justice be done as is right God, let your justice be done but let it fall on me and not on them. He will demand no further payment. There is no further payment required. If you ever find yourself thinking, you know, God might overlook a few things, but if I keep doing this, he's gonna gonna give up on me. 
Or if you find yourself thinking, if I do this and this and this, then I'll be okay with God. Then I'll be in God's good books. No, not so. Not so. His blood was shed for you. His blood satisfies God's justice completely. It's the channel for the grace and the forgiveness of God that is extended to you. He has paid for your sin, past, present, and future. He's paid for it all, and he will never, ever ask you to make further payment. He will never ask that. He'll never ask you to make atonement for your sin by following a set of rules and by being good. No, we come to worship as a response to his salvation, as a response to the grace of God, not as a means to salvation or a means to access his grace. You know, you can have utter security, utter assurance in your salvation. Why? Because it's not about you. It's about him. It's about his blood that that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It's not about what you have established. It's not about the things that you do. It's all about what he has done and what he has established. You don't have to perform to secure your salvation. It has been done It's been done. Jesus cried from the cross. It is finished. Praise God. Praise God. It is finished. There is no further payment required. So let us put our trust, let us put our hope fully, completely in in the blood of Jesus. Amen. Amen.